Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we start. If you are enjoying our podcast across the platform, across the Tortoise Shack, we would really appreciate if you could put your hands in your pocket and help us keep it going. We have no ads, we have no sponsors. We rely entirely on you, our listeners, to pay it forward. How you do that is you click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It's in the podcast you're listening to right now. Every single cent we get counts and helps us keep the mics on and the conversations going. There are thousands of you listening and it is wonderful that that is the case, but we need a few of you to chip in and pay it forward so we can keep this show on the road. Uh, I won't delay you any further, but if you can, while you're listening to this pod, have a look at the link and see if there's a level that, that you're happy to chip in and help us keep the show on the road. Thanks very much and enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and we are back chatting to our friend in the UK. Uh, but before we go there, I just want to plug a couple of things that are that we've done in the last few days. There is a podcast coming out in a few hours with a young lady who has who's brought up through the care system and her experience of it uh, and her advocacy coming out of it. But I do think... I want to, I probably want everybody to go listen to it because it's a powerful personal story. I'm sick of hearing about statistics and, and the idea that we're told, you know, that homelessness is normal and there's a normal level of it. This person, like many, didn't become homeless because of any any fault of their own. And I'm sick of that narrative that there's, you know, and it is being put out there, Martin, time and time again, we're being told, you know, they have issues. They have, uh, I, I, uh, I'm sick of people being blamed for their own. Uh, their Look, own. It's just an easy way out for these people. It takes responsibility away from the government for doing anything, Tony. Yeah, well, that's I, what it's about. Um, I, and thanks to Kellyanne for sharing that story. So, yeah, I'm plugging that anyway. But look, as I said, we are going back to talk to Professor Richard Murphy. Um, and Richard, I suppose, just first of all, before we start, um, the if we can get into, if you don't mind, the judgment last week by the Supreme Court on the could Scotland have a second independent referendum without getting Westminster's blessing? Uh, you put together a little tread on it and talked about the kind of cognitive dissonance in the judgment. Can you can I just get your sense of of, of it and what what it kind of said to you as someone who who is, let's tell the truth, uh, a believer in Scottish independence? Yeah, I believe in Scottish independence. I believe in Irish independence, too. That's why I believe in Scottish independence. You know, you can't be Irish and then say you don't have any belief that Scotland should have the right to be free either. Look, the case went to the Supreme Court. Lord Reid gave the ruling. He is actually a Scottish law lord. Um, So he's a Scottish judge of origin. So he understands Scottish law as well as English law. This point is really important because, of course, one of the things that identifies the existence of a country is having its own legal system. And Scotland has maintained its own legal system since 1707 when it created the Act of the Union with England and Wales. The decision was that Scotland Scotland's Parliament cannot decide to hold a legal referendum on independence. And they went through a series of steps to get there. Basically, they rejected the UK government's argument that this was a hypothetical question because there was no plan to hold a referendum at present and therefore the court couldn't look at the issue. They decided that the court could look at the issue because it could arise and therefore it was important to give a ruling. So, okay, round one to Scotland. 
Then they looked at would the decision actually be legal to hold a referendum? And they actually decided that Scotland could hold a referendum because under what are called the reserve powers, at this stage they decided that, by the way. I'm not saying they did ultimately. At this stage they said Scotland could hold a referendum because the reserve powers say the Scottish Parliament can't decide to leave the union in effect. And of course, a referendum isn't actually going to decide to leave the union if the referendum was advisory, as, for example, the Brexit referendum was supposedly advisory, then A, it wouldn't be binding and B, it would only suggest that Scotland should leave the union and the actual act of leaving would be after the referendum and be taken by others. So it was said that in principle, legally, Scotland could actually go ahead and make this decision. But they then said that might be the legal nicety, but the practical consequence was that in practice, Scotland might leave the union because there was a difference between legal reality and political reality. And the political reality was that the binding refer- non-binding referendum, if it said leave, would mean leave. Therefore, they decided that the practical consequence was that Scotland would be deciding to leave. And that's what would happen um, if there was a referendum and therefore Scotland couldn't decide to do this. And in the process, they rejected the the precedents in international law, which were brought into the argument by the SNP, and actually not by the Scottish government. The SNP did make submission into the case and asked for permission to do so. And they referred to two decisions, one in Quebec um, and one in Kosovo, um, both decided by English law, particularly or by international law. But the Kosovo case is really interesting because, in fact, the advisors on the case were the British government. And the decision was suggested that you can only leave, basically, if you're being held as a former colony under position under sort of stress of violence. You know, you're being restrained from exercising your own will as a former colony. Mm. And A, Scotland isn't a former colony. And B, there is no oppression of people in Scotland by staying in the UK, which isn't quite what my Scottish friends would uh, agree with. You know, they would argue that A, we have been turned into a colony in Scotland, and B, um, they are oppressed by not being able to exercise their democratic right to have the government that they want because the devolved government is a bit of a farce, if we're totally honest. The powers are ridiculous, the taxing powers are absurd, and the right to actually determine Scotland's future is decidedly limited. And they're saying, well, you know, we went into an act of the union and we're, now we can't leave. And the amazing, bizarre political reaction is that we hear. The Tories, Keir Starmer, the Liberal Democrats, all saying, oh, it's a voluntary union. Scotland can leave. How do we leave? Well, only if we agree. Will you agree? No. Um, And therefore, it isn't a voluntary um, union. And I don't think that this is a sustainable stalemate is the outcome of this. They're taking it as a given that Scotland is going to say leave, Richard. They're taking it as a given. They're not saying they might not leave. They're saying that they're predicating all of this on the basis that Scotland is going to vote to leave. Well, I mean, again, that's a quite surprising thing to do because the opinion polls don't support that. But when you actually look at what happened in the 2014 referendum, when the polls, um, when the campaign started, the opinion polls were heavily in favour of Scotland remaining. And and, you know, about 75-25. When it came to the actual vote, it was 55-45. So there was a massive swing towards the Leave campaign. 
Um, and I think all the mainstream political parties think that the same swing would happen again. So the fact that it's around 50-50 in the opinion polls is not seen as a good indication of what the outcome of a referendum would be. I think they all believe that a referendum would move towards a leave vote. And because of that, I think they're petrified. It's really interesting, isn't it? You know, that Scotland apparently, according to all of them, can't afford to leave. And yet they're desperate to keep it. Why are they desperate to keep it? Because actually they know Scotland has resources that the UK can't do without, in particular renewable energy resources, which yeah, are which, phenomenally big in Scotland. Which is like, I mean, wind energy. To we we recall one of the major um, developers or companies that designed wind energy tried to start up in Ireland first. I didn't find it. Didn't find it very good when they're pushing against for. And again, not to knock the IDA here, they've done obviously remarkable work on on on, on bringing in certain companies, but they didn't understand this. And then and now Scotland has has reaped a lot of benefits from it. Um, just and it is interesting because you say as like we hear it from an Irish perspective. Mood music then changing in terms of any talk of border polls where they say, oh, maybe we should have a supermajority now. You know, it's no longer good enough to have 50 plus one uh, is this is this is this notion. And we say that as part, you know, people who are in, say, the the in, in North of Ireland, in, in the North, who who they voted to remain. Uh, in, in, they didn't want Brexit. They voted to stay in the EU and the 50 plus one was good enough to, to take them out. So, you know, it can't it, it can't be an a la carte. Democrat, uh, and from the Scottish perspective, it's it's very interesting to see where this goes. As someone who talked to, I mean, one of the, you remember, Martin, you remember the amount of coverage I did, like on the Tordeshack and with people on the Catalan referendum. Yeah, yeah. And like, I mean, it was just like it was incredible the amount of work that went into that. It but was, if you come back to the to Quebec, what Richard mentioned to Quebec, that was one of the tightest referendums I think that there has ever been. Absolutely absurd. Yeah. It was so extremely tight. So when you're talking about super majorities, too, and I think the majority was less than a percent in that one, Richard, wasn't it? It was less-, less than a percent. And I think what that says, and this is the other absurdity, is that, you know, the, the Northern Ireland Agreement, Belfast Agreement, um, whatever we wish to call it, um, has a condition that you can have a border poll every seven years. Um, now it's got to be triggered, but there actually is a provision for every seven years. Supposedly, Scotland, because of a throwaway comment by Alex Salmond in 2014, is only allowed one in a life, uh, once a lifetime, which is interpreted as once a generation, 25 years or something. Um, but I think that this is absurd. This is something that is, is a part of democracy. If a country really wants to be independent, we have to let that country become independent to let it have its own will. And Scotland would be a mid-sized European state. There's absolutely, I mean, in my mind, completely plausible that it's financially credible. Um, more so, I think, actually, than um, the UK is at present. Um, it has a stronger basis for thinking it could survive. So Scotland is in a very difficult political position the difficulty being compounded by the fact that the SNP leadership is not noted for its courage on this issue. Can I put it as politely as that? Um, you know, Nicola Sturgeon is all very good at you know waving the banner um, and raising the saltire, but in the reality of the campaigning world, she's pretty darn cautious. She's very uncertain as to where to go. Um, I write for the national newspaper in Scotland, and there you'll find a range of opinion, which is all about, you know, what do we do despite the SNP rather than because of the SNP? And that doesn't mean they're all queuing up behind Alex Salmon, because I think, you know, I know Alex. Um, 
I know quite a lot of people, I suppose, but I do know <laughs> Alex. <laughs> it's my job to know people. Uh, but um, he is a spent force in Scottish politics. I don't think that vehicle is the way in which there's going to be much of an alternative brought forward. The SNP is the route, but the SNP membership are deeply frustrated with yeah, the, we, we, it, It's actually, it's not listeners who've fared John before won't be shocked to hear you say that because we've had those opinions, particularly around, um, I will say, uh, the ideology, ideology as well of the SNP and how they how they you know choose to operate the economy as well and 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 their oh, choices. profoundly neoliberal yeah profoundly neoliberal time uh, so so um but that brings us on to where where we stand and I, I I know you spotted it yesterday that they're talking about you know bringing back the um, banker bonuses in Dublin and uh, lifting the pay caps uh, and uh, going you know here come the good times and they're going to do it just before our finance minister moves into another portfolio as part of this government uh, rotation, which is, you know, it's it's crazy that we're, we've, this charade is going to go on. But nonetheless, <laughs> I, I'd say I'd say you must have got a chuckle at it thinking this is the same argument I put forward a few only a few months ago when the Bank of, Ar- Bank of England started hiking interest rates and banks were making huge profits for doing bloody well nothing. Uh Literally, you're going to be in exactly the same position. You know, the European Central Bank is behind the Bank of England. It's behind the Federal Reserve. But we're hearing the same noises. We're going to keep on raising interest rates until inflation is gone. The difficulty being, of course, the inflation rate across the whole of the eurozone varies quite significantly from country to country. And one interest rate is hardly designed to fit all. Now, I'm not noted as a fan of the euro. In fact, I loathe the idea of a single currency since I was an undergraduate and first looked at the issue. And I think about 1977. So I've been pretty consistent on that issue for a long time. Um, I mean, it's just a bad idea, but you got it. There it is. The euro's there. The interest rates are rising and the banks are going to profit as a result because they ended up with very large balances on their balance sheets, which are basically government created money lent to them on which they're now going to be paid increasing amounts of interest. And guess what's going to happen with that interest? Those oh-so-clever bankers who are fleecing us all for the money that they're taking from the public purse at a time that there are better uses for it are going to pay themselves bonuses and justify it all by saying, but look at the amount of tax we'll pay personally on that. Therefore, it's all okay. What a load of, this is a technical term coming up, I offer a warning in advance, what a load of cobblers. But Richard, here in Ireland, it's even worse in that we've given the banks a tax break. No, no, that's not true, Martin. What we've said is because of the amount of money that they that they insure it, it took in losses during the banks had to make provisions while the when they were selling loan books, bad loans, or non-performing loans, and they said, "Well, look, you can." pay that back and in, in, in sort of not have to pay taxes for nearly a decade, basically, because yeah. you've offset it against your losses. And they're still able to play that card now, even though we're back at this. And it's I, and I also want to make a point that it's really important to say that they're talking about, you know, we need to increase, say, a base pay to to ha- over over half a million now is where we need to go. Uh, the average banker CEO in Ireland actually makes more than most of the average similar levels in the UK. It's not, and it's to a factor of nearly 180% more when you consider how small Ireland is. I mean, like Dublin is, Dublin is a dot. Even and uh, I'm talking about people in London, the city of London, and in, in, and Manchester, Birmingham and places like that. They are not, it's not like for like, but going back to it, some of the other, like we've been talking about 
social un- unease, social upheaval, seeing the problems um, that, you know, I think one of the phrases I used before we came on is empires don't decline, they fall. Um, but but maybe, maybe there's, there's, a, there's talk of a property correction in the UK. Uh, I, I, I you know, we'd we'd have always said, is that just a polite way of saying a property crash? What's your um, what's your take on it? It's definitely happening in the commercial world anyway. It is happening in the non-commercial world as well. Um, I happen to have a good friend who's just sold a property. It's been a pretty damn stressful experience. It's always a stressful experience. But he had to drop the price, I think, three times to get the sale. Um, he wasn't particularly worried because he thought the price that the agent started to put it on for was absurd in the first place. And I think, you know, he's happy. Um, but there is very definitely downward pressure in the market. I think there are 50% fewer buyers out there at present than there were before September. People have realized that interest rates have now pushed a change of property ownership, either made property ownership beyond their reach uh, for those who haven't got a property or for those who were traditionally thinking of moving up the property ladder because family or whatever have arrived. Now, that isn't going to happen anymore because they can't afford to do it. I suspect there'll be a small boom as a result for house extensions. Uh, That tends to be the corollary. Uh, People trying to find space in the existing homes because of things like, you know, the next child's turned up or whatever. But the truth is that we are going to see a decline in property prices in the UK because we are talking about interest rates, which even now, after the relative stabilisation that Sunak has brought to the markets of around 6% on UK mortgages. Now, 6% mortgage interest rate doesn't sound horrendous to somebody like me who lived through a 14% bank base rate in 1991 in the UK, and I had a mortgage at the time, uh, and that wasn't comfortable, except that I was borrowing only about three times my earnings at That's the time. Right. Whereas now people are borrowing six, seven, eight times their earnings. So a 6% interest rate is in fact much worse than the 14% interest rate was then in terms of unaffordability. We're already hearing stories about people in the UK who, because of the change in the energy price support they're getting, are going to be paying up to a third of their income in energy costs. Now, admittedly, those are lower earning people. They may not be owning properties, although that isn't excluded as a possibility. They may be renters. But we're also talking about people are going to see these massive increases in their property costs, which I think are yeah, unaffordable, beyond imagination, 5,000 plus pounds a year extra interest costs on mortgages. And the inevitable consequence is that the house prices in the UK are going to fall. Um, when house prices fall, the whole economy tends to move down a bit because people don't move. They don't buy new soft furnishings. They don't buy all that other crap, which seems to go with moving. God, I hope I never do it again, but I bet I will. Um, I always say, I hope I'll never do it again. And I've more, moved many more times than average in my career than most people in the UK. Um, but, you know, there is this risk. At the same time, there is a very interesting report this morning um, that actually after the Black Friday events, um, many retailers in the UK are already offering substantial discounts prior to Christmas. The likelihood is that we are moving not from a period of inflation but into a period of deflation. You think? The UK faces a real possibility that we'll move rapidly out of inflation towards deflation. In fact, even... The so, latest so so, so consumer, OBR... co- consumer spending could is is that depressed? 
Consumer spending is sufficiently depressed that retailers are having to offer significant. Yeah, they're, 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 we're, we're already seeing their January sales in 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 late in November. December. Yeah, yeah, late November. And I think that yeah, there is that much fear, and I don't think that we will see you know, a genuine deflation coming in this year, twenty twenty two, because Christmas is going to happen. But come January, I see no reason why we won't begin to see a, a downward trend. Some things are already happening. I mean, we're going to follow the pattern of the states where already with uh, you know, used car prices have been one of the big drivers of inflation since um, end of COVID. Um, in the states, used car prices are back to where they were. Um, they're not in the UK yet, but they will be. I don't know what the situation is in Ireland, uh, but I suspect they'll follow a trend. New car prices are tending to rise again because new car prices are reaching the market, but manufacturers are only putting on sale the most expensive product in the range in most cases, because that's one they only one they make money on. Um, and the other factor here, and this is one I want to actually add into this whole equation, um, I, I worry about the mortgages and affordability. But ninety-one percent of new cars in the UK are bought on what are called personal leasing plans. Yeah personal car plans. Um, you don't buy the car. Um, you don't fund the whole car. You you know pay your 300 quid a month. And at the end of it, you, you pay a down payment. You pay 300 quid a month for three years, sometimes four years now. And at the end of it, you have the option to buy for a lump sum. No, no. Gen and generally what happens is they offer you cash for the car back to wrap you in for another four-year four deal. Precisely. That's the way cars are bought now. Um, Ford alone have more than 2 million cars out on this scheme at the moment. Um, and that's just Ford, who are actually, of course, a bank these days. They're not a car manufacturer. Mm -hmm. The cars are simply manufactured to finance the bank. Um, that's where the money's made. Um, and I've, I wrote about that in my book in 2011, The Courageous State, when I said that actually most products are now made to finance, you know, to produce loans. There's, there's a, just to give listeners a bit of perspective on this, listen to an ad for the new Volkswagen electric cars, and they will say to you at the end of it, Volkswagen Bank is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. <laughs> and you're you think you're listening to a car ad. You're not. You're, You're not. Yeah, it's, you a fine, it's a finance deal. Like so many other consumer products, these things are created to create the loans, and, and that's where the money's made. The real risk is that at the moment, those loans have been highly profitable for these banks, including the shadow banks, which are really car companies, um, because secondhand prices have been very good, and therefore these loans have been really quite profitable. If the secondhand car market goes back to being where it was or even worse, and actually people can't afford to buy cars, and lots of people try to return their cars, which is the great fear these companies have, because the choice between the mortgage and the car comes down to, we'll keep the house, thank you very much, the roof over the kids' heads, rather than worrying about having the Volvo uh, or whatever it might be, um, then there's going to be a glut of secondhand cars. And that's curiously where I think the tipping point in the, in the whole economy is going to be that there may well be a financial crisis caused not by mortgages, but by car loans, uh, because people literally won't be able to afford them. And there'll wasn't be there, cars on the market. Wasn't there sort of soundings of that in the US maybe 18 months ago as well, that there's a time bomb sitting there waiting to go off? And the time bomb is basically when people can't afford to keep... At the moment, people are still paying for the loans. They're still keeping these cars. And the whole logic of this market is you can afford to have a car that you can't afford. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, that is literally what it's about because you're only financing the little bit now, not the whole car. Now, I, I've never been seduced by this because I mean, I literally 
look out of the window at my, I do drive a Volvo. It's a knackered old Volvo. Uh, when Volvos become cool, that is, when they're knackered and old. Um, and they've got you know well into six digits on the clock. Well, that's mine. Um, and I own it because it's not worth a lot of money. But the point is, I don't buy into the whole model. But the model is one that is pervasive. 91% of all cars in the UK on this model. If those people can't afford to pay for those, we face a massive financial crisis. And you said, you know, when does the empire cease declining and when does it fall? That's where the tipping point is. And I did think a few weeks ago that was the mortgage. And, you know, so many people are on long-term loans in the UK where they won't be renewing for a year or two that that is going to gradually develop. I think the cars will be hitting earlier. Yeah, and We've and, got and, prices and, coming and, our way still. And you don't have the the glut of you have a lot of fixed uh, mortgages as well that are, but you still have a real crisis in rents and a huge, oh, since, massive crisis in rents. And, and 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 I want to make a point as well that so we talk about a housing shortage in Ireland. The CSO, our census will tell us that we actually have a glut of vacant properties. So I mean. You know, on census night, they thirty five thousand. There's no one hundred and sixty hundred and sixty six thousand empty properties in Ireland. That's before you start on derelict properties. Yeah. That's in a, its overall stock of one and a half million homes, folks. So it's it's a huge percentage of our of our housing stock. The UK though has at least three hundred a need for at least three hundred thousand social and affordable homes. Uh, is is the shortfall? It was the last time we looked at and rents. Even even in this market, Richard, it looks like rents won't come down because the demand is going to drive it, and and that is also a huge problem for the people who can't who who, you know, the the rent actually is thirty three percent, forty percent of their monthly take home pay, and and Absolutely. and and I think that's a real like that's where. I, I think political political um, malaise of 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 privatization, financialization of property in the UK. Like I spoke to to John Harrison, the Guardian, a couple of weeks ago, and he was kind of saying that there's nothing happening. If the, if that three hundred thousand figure that I quoted on the shortfall of homes, that's from 2015, Tony. He said to me, you know, things are it's 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 probably it's just getting worse. And we and I, I wrote a, a a blog. I mean, because as you guys know, I've been suffering from long COVID in the last week or so. Um, which I've been suffering for five months now since I had COVID in the summer, July. And so I took a, virtually a week off my blog, which is almost unknown. And then I come back and think, you know, what's going on? And I look around everywhere and realize that actually it seems like nothing's going on. And that was the whole point of a blog I wrote, that actually suddenly it seems like the UK has this sort of political, totally boring political scene. Twitter's looking dead, and it's not just because of Elon, Elon Musk and the fact he seems to be knocking people off my list of followers by the day, um, and people I follow by the day. I'm going to have to keep on checking whether I'm following the people I actually want to follow because he seems to disc, you know, knock me off. No, it's not just because of that, and it's not just because the newspapers are suddenly boring or it's World Cup or whatever else. No, it's actually because we are seeing nothing happening in the political scene, and it's as though Sunak can't do anything. Um, because his party's utterly divided. And Starmer is realising that the Tories are suffering for factional warfare, so he's trying to remove every faction in the party but his own um, until Labour has nothing left to offer. Um, and we're ending toward, you know, we're heading towards the politics of landless and literally nothingness because the Tories won't be able to get anything through Parliament and Labour's got no ideas what it would want to do as an alternative. And I don't think anyone's going to put up with this blandness, this incompetence, this you know ineptitude for long. Oh, I don't know, Richard. We put up well, Martin, here. you. Well, well, well. The only, the only thing that that actually, and I, 
will put this will out in myself as, as someone who's who's paid attention. If Matt Hancock can do so well on a TV show based on popularity, it doesn't it doesn't augur yeah. well, yeah. you know. I know perhaps I'm just the optimist that there are still some people who will get very angry out there, but I still hold the view that we we ain't seen nothing yet, as I, I think it was um, for those who are old enough to remember Backman Turner Overdrive. Yeah. Um, and I am. Um, <laughs> we ain't seen nothing yet. I'm like a baby. We just ain't seen nothing you yet. England, or, sorry, the UK does serve a purpose. It serves a purpose as a salutary lesson for Irish politicians <laughs> because we can always point and say our poor are not as w- poorly off as your poor. and it happened again this week mm-hmm. it did happen again this week so you serve because you are the the <laughs> absolute drags the poster child the poster child for for (laughs) you know you're the bold boy of old europe and uh as long as we compare ourselves to you and you're worse our crowd feel they don't have to do anything but i genuinely think that people who really just cannot pay anymore yeah are going to be and that's just going to become increasingly apparent um i wish i didn't have that feeling you know one of my most accountants and i trained as an accountant after doing an economics degree so i do both um look at the detail and ignore the big picture i'm always interested in the big picture how does it all add up Mm. and to me when i look at you know the whole financial future nothing adds up and i still remain this position nothing if nothing adds up then people can't pay if people can't pay then we're in deep shit and that's bluntly where we are. And you talked about people spending huge sums of their money on energy. Um, you know, if we were, and Martin, I don't know, like this, um, we, I think it's Carlo Weather is one of the, is actually a real popular um, social media account that, that tracks weather patterns in, in Ireland. And, and Alan, who does it, is quite popular in, in, in small kind of local radios and things like that. He's always, he's very good. The big concerning thing was the, the east wind is due in the next 10 days and now we're really going to find out what, what people have to do that's right choose between eating and heating because it's been mild you know what i mean we've had we've had no real we've it's been damp and miserable but it's been mild um and you know that's that's a grave concern when we get to that and in the uk you don't have we the the, the state here are throwing everybody 200 quid here's 200 quid to pay your esb bill here's 200 quid to pay your gas bill it's a lot it's a lot um it's a, We've got that at the moment, actually. We have got everybody's getting a, a bung at the moment. That will go next year. Yeah, um, yeah. So I get 67 quid a month off my bill. God knows why. But 67 quid a month is coming off my bill at present, um, which, you know, frankly, and I'll be honest, I'm I'm in the fortunate position I could pay that 67 quid. Uh, but there are a lot of people for whom that is much more important. So, you know, there's can, an appeal out there. Can, can I ask one last question on the on the whole, though? The job situation. We're now seeing that, you know, we've all like across the globe, we've seen what has essentially been well in the developed world, like full employment. We've seen, you know, that that and, and some of the tactic, though, is to create unemployment to actually get to help bring down inflation is that destructive, that destructive thing. How is the job scenario looking? I know I know Dublin is all terrified because Elon Musk let go half his people and, you know, Facebook are letting go lots of people to our national shame, our, our, our 
pride and joy, the lads from Stripe, let go people. You know, all of these things of um, the tech bubble is is biting. They and over ex- they were ahead of the market. Yeah, well, look, whatever, whatever lie they told themselves. <laughs> Um, but no, we, we, like, is how is the what is the what are you reading in the tea leaves there in terms of the the UK's labour market? The labour market is not nearly as buoyant here as the claim suggests. If you want to get a zero hours contract as a waiter, you will find a zero hours contract as a waiter. And I'm sure I could have one this afternoon in you know, somewhere down the high street near where I am right now. Um, but if you're actually looking for something which pays a decent wage, it's actually pretty bloody hard. And it's particularly hard for young people to find something right now. Uh, because there are many employers who are not willing to invest at all in any training. They're looking to actually try and transfer skills from other people because they've got no prospects. Yeah, they haven't got that longer term vision of their own at present to actually take somebody on and take the risk of training them. So for many people, the job situation is much worse than it looks. And we have a massive disguised unemployment problem anyway. The massive disguised unemployment problem being that there are so many people who are on zero hours contract who appear to be on an employment situation where, frankly, the whole arrangement is so marginal that you can actually say it's a disguised unemployment, or in some cases, it's a definite underemployment. You you are simply not working the whole of the time that you're supposedly recorded as full-time employed. So the argument that, I mean, the Bank of England is talking about unemployment rising in the UK by one and a half plus million. Um, over the next uh, couple of years, the Office for Budget Responsibility is in broadly the same area. So it's not looking good for people who, in the UK with regard to jobs. I think they're understating the potential risk. And why? Because they actually are overstating the prospects of recovery um, because they're underplaying the consequences of high interest rates. Um, so I feel that the employment situation is looking pretty grim. Um fair, honest analysis. I know that um, Danny Blanchflower um, certainly shares that view, although he's bogged down with all sorts of other issues, so we haven't spoken as much of late. Um, But the reality is that we are in an intensely difficult position, which can only get worse. That's uh, a rosy outlook, Richard, and uh, I'm glad that you are nominally worse than we are um, for the time being. I would like to wrap it up by saying it doesn't take 50% of your population to be poor, destitute, hungry, and cold for change to happen. It takes about 5%. Yes, I it agree. It takes about 5%. So, you know, democracy goes out the window when you leave people hungry. Richard, thank you so much for having this conversation with us again. You keep us in the loop on our worst neighbors. And we, we do like to know that you're suffering over there. This is really more, Martin. Can slightly you, more than we are. I, I thought I was going to put the boot in by saying we'll all be shouting for Wales this evening. That's, yeah, we you know, will. <laughs> but um, I, I will. Martin, I will come back at you and say, you know, you do know we just put out a pod with Kieran Nugent from Neary, the, the economist here. And we have an increase of working poor of 60, 60 percent yeah, in, in one year. So we've gone from one hundred and eighty. 
thousand people who are working and probably in need of some form of social transfer to 288,000. So that is not a healthy picture of a good economy, despite our huge GDP figure. Listen, Richard, thank you so much for talking to us again. I hope you're feeling better. It's great. It's great to chat with you again. And I hope um, I hope that I hope the old uh, long COVID doesn't hang around any longer than it than than it has already. Thanks. uh, Thanks for listening, folks. Do check out the Kellyanne pod when I post it. It's really powerful. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.